0: loving father we pray that you'd give us humility and openness to your word help us to hear your word as people who follow you as our lord and we pray that we would honor you in the way that we come before you now in jesus name amen well last week uh, as deb said we covered the broad topic of gender Um, we noted from genesis the uh, importance of humanity being male and female uh, equal and alike, but with a degree of difference. Uh, We also noted that each of us uh, needs to receive our sex as God-given. He's given us bodies and a place in this world which informs our calling and our identity. And we noted that our expression of being a man, masculinity, or being a woman, femininity, needs to be controlled by the Bible rather than cultural stereotypes. Uh, The aim is maturity in Christ, it's not being more manly or more womanly, and if we are growing in Christ we can trust that God will be making us better men or better women, as the case may be. Today we're exploring how the Bible applies these ideas to marriage. Um, Marriage is the main area in which the Bible describes maleness and femaleness making a difference. Um, So what does that look like? I'm very mindful um, of how threatening this can be, especially for women. Uh, We're very aware of the history of injustice, which uh, operated in homes as well as society, and uh, that domestic abuse is happening in homes all around us, including homes within the church, with husbands standing over their wives, um, and vice versa in some cases. It's been suggested that the teaching of the Bible here actually causes domestic abuse. um, And so the church should abandon the teaching of complementary roles for uh, men and women. And, And it's true that the Bible may have been used to justify abuse when it has been wrongly understood. But if it's rightly understood, the Bible assigns differences between men and women in marriage without condoning abuse. In fact, the Bible's pattern for marriage is good and wise. And we dare not abandon any of the Bible's teaching or invent new ways of interpreting the Bible that stop it from saying what it clearly says. Um, Our starting conviction is this is the word of God. And so we, as the people of God, can't ignore it or avoid it. Having said that, uh, these issues can be upsetting. And uh, if this topic uh, raises personal issues for you, then please feel free to make contact with an appropriate uh, member of staff, a, a female or a male. Um, uh, s- it's still possible to come down uh, at, after the service and debrief and pray with somebody who's sensitive uh, after the service if you'd like to do that. Um, and or call the number on the posters in the bathrooms which can put you in touch with help. Um, if this raises issues for you and your situation and also as I said before there's opportunity for questions which we'll be having throughout the term and indeed after church today if you'd like to jot one down. I'm also aware as we launch into this topic that not everybody is currently married um, but marriage is important to all of us at least indirectly it's such a fundamental thing for our society. So i'd like to go back firstly to the blueprint for marriage in genesis and then go to the new testament to see it being applied Uh, we looked at genesis chapter 2 last week and noted the simple point that gender matters uh, male and female men and women are integral to god's design the man couldn't do it alone Um, it was not good that he was alone obviously he couldn't reproduce and fill the earth alone but nor could he exercise dominion effectively or image God the way that uh, humans were called to, are called to do. Um, he needed a counterpart, who somebody who was very much like him, taken from him, a fellow image-bearer, an equal, but also different in some ways. And so gender matters. Humanity needs male and female. That's true of society in general. A society of all males would be... Severely lacking. Um, Occasionally I go to men's events, men's breakfasts, uh, men's conferences, and they're okay for a little while, but you are aware that it's not complete in some way. And a society of all females, I imagine, would be lacking too, um, in some small way at least. Uh, But Genesis 2 goes further than just general society needing males and females. It, It sets up male and female as the foundation for marriage and family. At the end of chapter 2, after noting the perfect match of the woman to the man, it notes in verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So that's the Bible's foundational description of marriage. A new family, a new joining, a new primary allegiance for these two people. The man and the woman leave their old flesh and blood in order to form a new one flesh and that expresses the aim of marriage which is unity or joining and reproduction is implied there as well although it's not referred to explicitly in chapter 2 at all Uh, and we know that this is not always possible for some couples but the one flesh produces children of the same flesh and blood uh, in this new family. But the nature of the relationship between the man and the woman is highlighted in the final verse of the chapter, verse 25, where it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So ideally, marriage is a relationship in which the man and the woman are perfectly at ease with one another, which implies a perfect knowing of one another, no secrets, nothing held back, a perfect security in one another, no distrust, and perfect love and this is why it has to be exclusive one-to-one there's not room for anyone else there and lifelong Uh, it's meant to be that profound and so that's our ideal there at the end of chapter two for marriage Uh, if you're married then your goal needs to be that kind of unity which means moving towards one another aiming to get closer with one another if you're married But we also see here that there's an order within this relationship men and women aren't identical being a husband and being a wife are not interchangeable Uh, and you see that order in a a few features of this chapter chapter 2 the man was made first so in a sense he's the firstborn uh, verse 8 the woman was made for the man verse 18 though the word helper does not mean inferior Uh, The man names the woman, verse 23, and the man is the primary one in establishing the family, verse 24. So while the man and the woman were equal partners, they're not the same. The man seems to be put in front to go first. And that's confirmed in chapter 3 where everything goes wrong. Uh, When the snake leads the people astray, his strategy is to ruin God's order. And in the fall, the order is inverted, it's flipped. Instead of God ruling and the man going first and the woman having his back and the creatures being ruled, we see a creature leading, the snake, the woman going first, the man following passively and God put last. The snake didn't approach the woman in the garden because she was weaker or more gullible or something, but he did that in order to... Do maximum damage to what God had set up. And so the result was that the wheels fell off. Suddenly the people knew evil from good. Uh, They had something to hide. They hid from God. They covered up their nakedness from one another. Uh, They didn't want to be known. They no longer trusted. They no longer felt secure. And God exposes their sin. He calls the man to account first. And the man blames the woman. And then he blames God for giving him the woman. And then God calls the woman to account as well, and she blames the snake. And so neither of them want to accept any responsibility in the end. And there was no going back from this. Humanity now knows evil as well as good, and we became sinners at this point. And in the second half of chapter 3, God reimposes his order. But from then on, it would only work imperfectly and only with pain. So in chapter 3, verse 16, it says, uh, uh, To the woman, God said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So a big part of the woman's God-given role was to bear children, and it wasn't supposed to hurt, but now it does. And the order between husbands and wives wasn't supposed to hurt either, but now it does. The wife's desire would be for her husband, which is the same wording as sin desiring to have Cain in chapter 4 verse 7. So it's a desire to dominate. And the husband would rule over his wife, a crushing kind of rule, as if his wife were a threat that he needs to fight against uh, as Cain needed to rule over his sin in chapter 4 verse 7 again and further the very ground is cursed uh, the work that the man was put there to do with the woman by his side would be painful and tiresome from this point onwards and so you see this is why it's all so hard including marriage um, the opening chapters of genesis give a blueprint for how things are supposed to work but there is a painfully realistic explanation here for why we struggle in so many ways and why marriage is part of that struggle. Uh, That's the Old Testament blueprint or foundation. As we turn to the New Testament, we see the authors urging Christians to still try to live by God's blueprint, but they acknowledge the painful brokenness of the world and our natures as uh, we do so. Uh, there are several places in the new testament where god's pattern for marriage is referred to uh, and the main ones uh, are probably ephesians chapter 5 and 1 peter 3. we looked at ephesians last term so i won't dwell on that one but paul's reason for underlining god's order in ephesians is theological he teaches there that the ultimate fulfillment of god's blueprint in genesis is not our earthly marriages but it's the eternal marriage between christ and his church which will be consummated when Jesus returns, and every Christian has a part in that eternal marriage between Christ and his church. But then he says, so earthly marriages should reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Husbands should love like Christ, women, uh, wives should submit like the church. So there's theological reasons in Ephesians 5 uh, for Christians to uphold that order in marriage. In 1 Peter, the reasons are different. They seem to be missional. Uh, overall, the letter of 1 Peter is largely about holding on for Christ in a hostile world. Uh, in the ancient world, people were particularly interested in maintaining the stability and the good order of society. They were suspicious of new religions and groups like the Christians. Is this new sect going to threaten the status quo? What's it going to do to the order that we have here? And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12... Uh, peter says live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify god on the day he visits us and then he goes on to urge the christians to submit Uh, from chapter 2 verse 13 he says submit to the human authorities like the emperor as good citizens from chapter 2 verse 18 he says slaves submit to your masters even the harsh ones as christ-like sufferers if necessary and then from chapter 3 verse 1 he says wives submit to husbands even non-christian husbands peter particularly mentions wives who would become christians without their husbands because of his concern here for mission and witness among the pagans in the ancient world wives were supposed to follow the religion of their husband Uh, And so the question was, what is this new religion trying to do to the social and religious order if we see the wives proclaiming that they become a Christian and not following the religion of their husband? Peter doesn't tell wives to stop being Christian. In fact, he tells them to work for the conversion of their husbands, which was a super radical thing for him to say. Wives, try and win your husband to your religion. Um, But he tells them to do that by following the biblical order for marriage, which is to submit to their husbands. So in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. He's not saying there that people can be converted without words, uh, because... The husbands here have already heard the word and not responded and he's not saying that it's all up to the wife to save her husband Um, the holy spirit does the converting and the saving and other people need to help as well it's not all on the wife but he's saying perhaps when a husband sees his wife living out her faith in their marriage and it's made her a better wife and a better person rather than stealing her away, which might have been his fear, maybe that'll be the thing that wins him in the end, is what Peter's saying. Now, that's only going to work if the change that he sees is real and deep rather than superficial. So he says in verses 3 and 4, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes rather it should be that of your inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in god's sight now again that's not saying that outward adornment is wrong and it's wrong to wear earrings and get dressed up sometimes it's just simply saying that that doesn't count for much in the end what is of great worth says peter is character and what peter emphasizes here for first century wives of unbelieving husbands is the gentle and quiet spirit that enables them to submit to their husbands rather than rebelling against them. Now, of course, all Christians need a gentle and quiet spirit. We all need to subdue our restless, selfish, uh, rebellious streaks in order to live good lives under God. Because we all have to submit to various orders in this life, and if you're a Christian, especially, we need to submit to Jesus. So we all need a gentle and quiet spirit. But wives need a special helping of gentleness and quietness if they're to submit to the responsibilities that God is giving their husbands in marriage. This is not to say that a woman should just quietly put up with abuse and or stay in a situation in which she's not safe. It's just saying that submitting requires... A quiet spirit even at the best of times and Peter gives an example of just such a wife in verses 5 and 6 he says for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves they submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear Now, the thing with Sarah is, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and you read the stories of Sarah and Abraham in Genesis, um, is that they both make some pretty awful choices in their marriage. Um, He doesn't seem like much of a selfless giver or a very good leader, and she doesn't seem to have a gentle and quiet spirit at various points. Um, However, basically, Abraham trusted God, and Sarah backed him up and went with him. She listened to Abraham and she followed him as he followed God. And so in that sense, she obeyed him. At one point in chapter 18, it says that she was afraid. And in fact, she lied to God at that point. But in the end, she didn't give way to her fear. She stood by Abraham and by God. Jewish traditions make sort of heroes out of the holy ones of the past. But perhaps the reality of Sarah and Abraham's marriage, as you read about it in Genesis, Um, a very bumbling journey and a very messy marriage, perhaps that's an encouragement to us in the end um, because they made it in the end and she played her part as his wife uh, in the end. Um, It doesn't have to be perfect. And Peter adds a note to Christian husbands in verse 7. He says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner And as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Husbands are not told to make sure that their wives submit. Um, uh, That's not their business in one way. Husbands need to make sure that they are doing what they are called to do, which is honouring their wives. And that involves three things here. Firstly, the husband should bear in mind that there is a degree of vulnerability in the wife's position. She's the weaker partner. That is, her situation is more vulnerable. She's voluntarily taken a place behind him. Uh, She bears children, uh, etc. Husbands need to bear that in mind and honour that. Secondly, the husband should bear in mind that his wife is a co heir in God's grace and eternal life. His place in the family doesn't make him God's favourite. She is his equal under God. And thirdly, the husband should bear in mind that his prayer will be hindered if his attitude to his wife is wrong. How can he pray rightly if his heart is hard towards the number one person that God's given him to care for? And how can he expect God to attend to his needs if he doesn't bother himself with the needs of the one who's chosen to depend on him? In a way and so uh, what we see here is that there may be an ordering within marriage but there needs to be a mutual honoring of one another in view of the positions that God gives well in terms of application of this today um, in the first century when the New Testament was written society was threatened by wives who might not submit to their husbands Uh, So Peter makes a point of telling wives, particularly those married to non-Christians, to submit as part of their Christian witness. Today, of course, society is not uh, threatened by wives that don't submit to their husbands, not our kind of society anyway. In fact, some people are horrified by the idea of the Bible saying wives submit to your husbands. But even if the missional reason is not prominent anymore, there's still the order that God has built into creation and there's still the theological reason to follow that order and reflect the ultimate marriage between Christ and the church in our earthly marriages. So what should that look like today? I think we need to bear in mind what we heard last week, what we noted last week, that we have cultural stereotypes of masculinity and femininity in our heads that aren't necessarily biblical, and we shouldn't read them back into the Bible. Uh, There's room for jacobs and esau's in the biblical understanding of manliness that is hairy-chested men and smooth-skinned men and there's room for deborah style warrior women and esther style beauty queens in a biblical understanding of womanliness the bible allows plenty of scope within masculinity and femininity and likewise we hear the words headship and submission and our minds form Pictures of what that looks like of often ugly pictures but those pictures may not be all that biblical either and we need to make sure that we don't go further than what the Bible means by those words there is scope for different expressions of headship and submission the Bible says to honor God's order but it doesn't prescribe what that looks like in detail it wisely leaves plenty of room Expressions of headship and submission will differ with culture. And they will also, of course, vary with the individual personalities and the particular combinations that you find in each and every Christian marriage. What we're told is that husbands should not neglect their responsibility for the well-being of their family, especially spiritual responsibility. They can't control everything, but they should do what they can. And it should never be selfish, it should always be loving, always honouring, never harsh, never abusive. Uh, The husband's aim should be for his wife to flourish under God. And we're told that wives should not seek to dominate, subjugate or belittle their husbands. They should get behind him and support him. Uh, They should combine their gifts with his to be as fruitful as they can together under God. So her aim is also for her husband to flourish under God. And this is going to look different depending on who God gives you for a spouse and the situation that he's put you in. Uh, It might even change over time as you change as individuals in in this marriage. Last week we heard that the goal of a man is not to become more manly and the goal of a woman is not to become more womanly. The goal of both is to grow in Christ and if they do they'll become a better man or a better woman in their own way. Likewise the goal of a wife is not oh how can i be more submissive and the goal of a husband is not oh how can i be more assertive the goal of both is to grow closer to their spouse in love and trust and respect and if they'll do if they do they will be becoming a better husband or a better wife Perhaps uh, we tend to tie ourselves in knots a little bit over this headship and submission thing, I think, uh, when in fact the Bible leaves us quite free for each couple to work out how it should look for them. Not everybody's married. um, That's not part of everybody's calling under God. But for those who are, it is important that we do this well. Uh, It's the relationship that we need to give most attention to except for our one with Christ. And it would be good for married couples, I think, having heard God's word here, to make sure that you do go home and talk to one another about this. And I would suggest that the questions that you ask are not, how can I be more submissive to you, or how can I be more of a leader here? But rather the question should be, how can I be a better wife to you? And how can I be a better husband to you? And how can we combine better to bear fruit for God? I think they're probably more um, productive questions for you to ask as you keep what you've heard in the Bible in mind. So I'm going to pray that uh, God helps us as a society and uh, as couples, uh, those of us who are married, uh, in the light of God's word here. Let's pray. Loving Father, we note here in your word how foundational marriage is uh, for human flourishing overall and we note how those who are married are called to love and care for and honour one another. Uh, Lord we pray that you would help all of us who are married to work out how best to love and serve our spouses in the way that you call us to. We pray that uh, we would not be slaves to unhelpful stereotypes that don't come from your word but that we would be creative and loving and uh, good at talking to one another about how to serve one another better in the relationships you give us. And we pray that you would make husbands more godly husbands and wives more godly wives. And we trust you, Lord, to be producing the fruit in each of us and our marriages as a result. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.